Hello, electorate listeners. This is Jen Taylor Skinner. The midterm elections are just around the corner, and it's down to the wire. But there's still so much work to do, starting with the House. If we flip just 23 districts in the House, we will take back the majority. In the past few weeks, there have been attacks on the LGBTQ community, attacks on the press, ongoing attacks and misinformation about immigration, children being ripped from their families, and billionaire tax cuts. And the list goes on and on. But if we can manage to flip just 23 districts, we can finally put a check on President Trump, his regressive administration, and these harmful policies. Because we know that this is not what democracy is supposed to look like. But that's how it works with Trump and the conservatives controlling the House of Representatives. And our only choice is to vote them all out and flip the House in the midterms this year. Think about how great that would feel to finally elect progressive candidates who will hold Trump and his corrupt administration accountable. So I urge you to please get engaged now because it's going to take everyone. Join Swing Left at swingleft.org slash electorate to find a nearby swing district. This is the best chance we have to put a check on Trump. Everybody who wants to take a stand must do more than vote this year. You must volunteer. So join Swing Left to find your nearest swing district and take action now. Sign up now at swingleft.org slash electorate. That's swingleft.org slash E-L-E-C-T-O-R-E-T-T-E. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. In this episode, voting rights and voter suppression. Isn't that nice? In this period of social, political, economic, and religious transformation, not one of us can be spared the luxury of withdrawing from the arena of action. As members of the family of mankind, each one of us is being called to help save our society. That was Coretta Scott King during a 1968 address at Harvard University, where she emphasized the necessity of civic engagement in voting. And that message is just as vital today because our democracy is at stake. But how do we balance this push to vote at all costs when there is an almost feverish effort to suppress our vote? In this episode, I talked to three experts about voting rights and voter suppression, starting with author and professor Carol Anderson, who wrote the book, One Person, No Vote. We talk a bit about the violent history of Americans fighting for the right to vote, but we open with a more recent example, the 2016 presidential election which was the first presidential election held without the full protection of the Voting Rights Act. And the reason we didn't have that protection was because of a 2013 Supreme Court case that basically gutted the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And that case was Shelby County versus Holder. Here is Professor Carol Anderson talking about the impact that case had on voter turnout in 2016. In 50 years, since the Voting Rights Act. So this was the first time we did not have the protection of the Voting Rights Act. And without that protection, what we saw was voter suppression working its horrific, pernicious, 
evil doings in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in North Carolina, in Texas, in Florida. And what happened then was that the black voter turnout was 7% lower in this election than it was in 2012. But without understanding that history of voter suppression, the history that required the Voting Rights Act in the first place, then we miss everything that is going on here. I, I remember seeing a piece in that came out of Milwaukee where Governor Scott Walker had done a lot with massive voter suppression in Milwaukee because Milwaukee, I think, is something like 40% African-American and accounts for 70% of the black population in the state. And what we know is that African-Americans overwhelmingly vote for the Democratic candidate, uh, not the Republican one, because of the Republican policies that are so anti-Black. Yeah. Um, and, and so if you suppress 70% of your Black population, there's a pretty good chance you can get the Republicans to carry the state. And that's what happened. But after the election, I saw a piece where they asked some, some black people in Milwaukee, why didn't you vote? And they were like, uh, you know, I just wasn't feeling Hillary. And you're going, uh, okay, you just weren't feeling Hillary. Uh, but the story is so much more than that. Because what the research also shows is that what voter suppression does is that it not only depresses the willingness to go vote, the ability to vote, but it begins to depress the sense that your vote matters. And when you begin to get people to buy into the, 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 the narrative that it doesn't matter how they vote or they don't want us to vote, so I can't vote. And, and, and that then not only spreads to that individual, but it spreads to the family and to the larger community as well. So it, it loops back on itself so that massive voter suppression. So when you've got people who are working class folk who are trying to vote on a Tuesday and trying to get to work or who are just getting off work and trying to vote, but get home to get some food on the table for the kids. Right. And, right. and they're running into polling places that are closed, polling places that have been moved, polling places that don't have equipment that works, or they're running into poll workers who don't have the latest information on the court ruling about what kinds of ID are absolutely acceptable. So people are thinking, I don't have this ID. And I know they, they say you got to have that one. So it doesn't matter. You know, all of those things feed in and loop on into each other. Yeah. And once they have done that, what happens is that the research is also clear, is that once you have depressed the vote in one election or so, that breaking the habit of not voting is a hard one to break. And so that's where we are right now. So we've got these battles going on in these states to, to you know, enormous court battles to end voter suppression, to end voter ID, to end voter roll purges. But we're also doing the, the kind of work that is about reframing the narrative about the importance of your vote and that every vote counts, that you count that your issues are on the table, schooling, quality education on the table, 
access to quality health care on the table, criminal justice reform on the table, tax policy that is not so regressive that you can't, you know, no matter how hard you work, you still can't get ahead. All of those are on the table. And so you're seeing incredible work being done, not only on the kinds of legal components of, of trying to dismantle voter suppression, but also the kinds of social cultural components that have happened because of voter suppression. That work is being done as well. You know, that's such an important point, because I think that's something that people overlook. You know, I think a lot of people who analyze, you know, voter suppression, they think, well, we just need to restore the laws and then things will be fine. But that psychological effect is really important because what the message that it sends is that, you know, voting is not for us. It's for people who can take the afternoon off at work and, you know, go during the week. It's for people who have, you know, voting polls open in their neighborhoods where they can just easily go in and vote. It's not for me. Right, right. And all of this is by design. I mean, that is... I mean, one of the things that I really begin to lay out in One Person No Vote is how systematic this is. So, for instance, something as 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 heinous, that's what I'll call it, uh, <laughs> as moving a polling um, station. What the research shows is that for every half mile that a polling station is moved from um, a black neighborhood, that the black voter turnout decreases by a certain percentage. So for every half mile that you move it, it goes down and down and down. So one of the things that they attempted here in Georgia, in Sparta, I believe it was, is they actually moved the polling station for the black precinct 17 miles away. Wow. Yeah. So it wasn't about popping into your neighborhood. It it was about getting into a car and driving 17 miles to be able to vote. Now, you know, that's ridiculous. Yeah. And and what happened then was civil society hopped in. Um, you know, I think it was the ACLU, maybe and the NAACP, maybe the LDF. I can't remember which ones, but some constellation of those groups and fought like the Dickens to remove what the election officials were trying to do. But think about the level of vigilance you have to have about that. So just moving a polling station. And one of the things that happened after the Voting Rights Act was gutted by the Supreme Court and those preclearance states, the states that used to have to run all of their changes to the voting laws by the Department of Justice and get the OK before they implemented them. After the Voting Rights Act was gutted in the Shelby County v. Holder decision, yeah. for the 2016 election, there were 868 fewer polling stations in those preclearance jurisdictions. Think about well, that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, this isn't the first time, obviously, this isn't the first time that, that something like that's happened. But another thing that, that I got out of reading One Person No Vote was the, the longevity of this effort, right? You know, after the 15th Amendment, after the 15th, <laughs> I, I just, what I realized from reading it is that, you know, there was never a clear beginning to voter suppression. It has right. always been with us. It's been 150 years nearly. 
Yes. I, I, and that's, I, I love, that's why I love being a historian, um, because it's really easy in the moment that we're in right now to see this as a just now moment, right? That Trump is an aberration, that voter suppression is an aberration, that after the Voting Rights Act, we overcame and all was good. And then, ooh, bad things happened in 2016. No. By looking at this history, you see, as you said, it is this ongoing struggle. Uh, what they say, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. It has required eternal vigilance. And one of the things that I really lay out is how with the Mississippi plan of 1890, and that was um, 1890 is, is like the beginning of Jim Crow. And that's when the states are figuring out how do we disfranchise this black population? How do we keep black people from having the right to vote when the 15th Amendment says they have the right to vote? And they developed a series of, of obstacles to the ballot box that didn't say we don't want black people to vote. But what it did was to look at the societally imposed characteristics of that black population and then made those characteristics the test to be able to vote. So you underfund schools. You've got a Jim Crow school system. You significantly underfund black schools. The average was like 252%. In Mississippi, the average was over 700%. And then you require a literacy test. And the literacy test, you know, it isn't see, dick, run, run, dick, run. Instead, it is a segment of the Constitution, either of the state or of the U.S. Constitution, that the person is supposed to be able to read and then interpret to the liking of the registrar. Now, if you have a Jim Crow education, and in many of these, these states, there weren't high schools for African Americans, not until the like 19, late 1940s, early 1950s. So you're asking people that you have systematically made sure were not educated to be able to read and translate a document, to be able to actually do constitutional law. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, you read my mind because I was going to ask you about the Mississippi Plan of 1890. And, you know, <laughs> the, one of the one of the interesting things about that section of your book is that it was so successful that Virginia was really impressed. <laughs> yes. And you had this character um, from Virginia, Carter Glass, right? Yes, and, and this yes. quote from your book, he said something to the effect of, you know, we're going to eliminate the darkie as a political mm -hmm. factor in less than five years. Yes. And that's what they did. That is exactly what they did. And, re and remember that part of the quote where somebody says, well, are you going to do it by fraud? Or are you going to do it by discrimination? He said, by fraud? No. By discrimination? Absolutely. I, and, and it's almost like being in the, the subsequent meeting in Florida when they were, and this is in the 21st century, yeah, when, yeah. right, right, when they're figuring out how to stop African Americans from coming to the polls using early voting. 
And one of the things they did where they looked and they said, okay, we see that African-Americans are using this souls to the polls piece where they're coming in after church. Now, remember, these are supposed to be these God fearing folk who really want Christians all around them and at the ballot box, but they don't want black Christians. Um, <laughs> and so it, the, the, the irony in all of this is just, uh, And so one of the things that they did was to, in Florida, was to eliminate the Sunday right before Election Day, because they knew from the data that that was one of the days, the big days that African-Americans used to vote early. So it's that same by fraud. No, by discrimination. Yes, definitely. But using that discrimination where they don't have to say we don't want black people to vote. But again, it's by using the kinds of data, the kinds of characteristics that the African-American community has, and then modeling the legislation to go right after them. Right. So a few things there. Nothing has changed, right, in relation to that. <laughs> Nothing's changed because, you know, with the literacy test, the, the system was set up, like you said, for education. You know, they didn't fund education for the Black community, so they couldn't pass literacy tests. So they found these ways that would make it harder for them to vote. And the second thing I wanted to mention is that people should understand the success that those efforts had. So just looking at what happened after the Mississippi plan and what happened around that time in 1896, one of the one of the numbers that you cite is that in Louisiana alone, originally there were 130,000 African Americans who were registered to vote in 1896. By 1904, there were a little over 1300. That's how effective it was. Yes, I it Devastating. Um, By the time the U.S. is fighting the Nazis, so we're in the 1940s, right? Yeah. It's a combination of the poll tax, which really preys on the poverty that African-Americans had, and the literacy test. That combination had led to only 3% of age-eligible African-Americans being registered to vote in the South. So you take election day terrorism, which was real, and then you combine that with the poll tax and the literacy test. So in the South, where the majority of African-Americans lived, only 3% were registered to vote when the U.S. is fighting Nazis. Right. Right. So, you wow. know, right. Taking us to, you know, mid-century, right around, you know, mm-hmm. World War II, you know, what a lot of people don't take into account is that it wasn't just, you know, voter suppression, which was bad enough. It wasn't just that people went to the polls to try to register and they were turned away. There was actually violence. And there's a story in your book about Maceo Snipes, a veteran who fought in World War II. Can you can you tell us about that story? Oh, yes. I mean, that story is is heartbreaking. And um and I've got to I've, I've got to give a, a shout out to my colleague Hank Klibanoff, whose class Civil Rights Cold Cases really helped uncover that Maceo Snipes story. So Maceo Snipes was a black veteran, a World War II veteran, and in 1946 he's home in in Georgia, and the white primary, which was another uh, method of voter suppression had been found unconstitutional in 1944. So Maceo Snipes is ready to vote. But there is an election going on in Georgia in 1946 that is as rabidly racist 
as it could possibly be. The man who is running for governor, Eugene Talmadge, has basically sent the word out to white Georgians that these black folks are uppity. They came back from the war um, and didn't know their place. And it's time for us to put them back in their place. And that place is not the voting booth. And and so he is basically calling for violence against black people who dare to vote. And Maceo Snipes goes to vote in the Georgia primary. And there's a sign there in Taylor County where he was that said the first Negro who votes, that will be the last time he will ever vote. You know, that'll be basically it's going to be you vote, you die was the the essential message of, of that. But Maceo Snipes is like, I fought in World War Two. I fought against Nazis. I fought for human rights. I have a right to vote. I am an American citizen. And he voted. He was the only black person who voted in Taylor County. A few days later, four white men showed up at his door, at his home, and knocked on it and asked him to step outside on the porch. And he's like, okay, yeah, what's up? And they pulled up their guns and started firing. There's a firing squad. Maceo Snipes went down. The men just put their guns away and walked away as if they had not just slaughtered a black man, a black veteran. Snipes' mother runs out the door. She sees her son full of bullet holes, crumpled on the porch. And he's a big man. And so, but she has mother love. She picks him up and there's no ambulance service for black people. Uh, there's not a black hospital, but she basically drags him to the hospital, which is basically a whites only hospital. And they're looking at this black man full of bullet holes and they don't care that this is a human being. They don't care that this is a veteran. And we're at that point now in American history where veterans are getting special citizenship status, right? None of that matters. He is basically put into a room the size of a closet and left there for hours and hours to just bleed out. It took him two days to die. Imagine the agony. But that sent the signal. You vote, you die. One of the most overlooked stories of how conservatives were able to unfairly dilute the progressive vote actually started in 2010 with an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal written by Republican strategist Carl Rove. The subtitle of the op-ed was He Who Controls Redistricting Can Control Congress. And it was an outline of how redistricting was the key to regaining Republican majorities. And out of this op-ed came a plan called Project Red Map. And it was through Project Red Map that Republicans were able to gain majorities in two-thirds of the state legislative chambers. And how in many of the country's districts, Democrats can actually win the majority of votes, but Republicans actually walk away with a win. The plan was as insidious as it was successful. So in this segment, I talk with Kira Lerner about Project Red Map. She's a political reporter at Think Progress and a voting rights expert. We talk about the details of Project Red Map and the effect it's had on election outcomes. In 2010, Carl Rove uh, published that op-ed in the 
uh, Wall Street Journal, pretty explicitly laying out the Republicans' party to gerrymander their way into congressional majorities. So this op-ed came out, and he outlined what the Republican plan was going to be. A man named Chris Jankowski, who is a very skilled Republican consultant and strategist, helped the party come up with this plan that they called Red Map, which was essentially that they were going to pour in outside money, money on the national level to local races in states across the country, specifically swing states like Pennsylvania, Michigan. They were going to pour in money to races that usually only got local attention and local money. And by winning seats in state legislatures, they were then going to be able to have Republican politicians in office in 2010 to redraw the maps and to create a more favorable map for Republicans to take control of Congress in uh, 2012. And that's exactly what it did. And the plan was ex- was a success. Yeah, it was a massive success. I mean, right, I, I geeked out on it the other day and I was looking at the word count and it's only 800 words, you know, about roughly about 4,000 characters, which is approximately, you know, 35 tweets, which is a single day's work for the president, right? It was pretty brief, but it had a, a, a massive effect, right? And I think that when all the work was done after this kind of redistricting project and Red Map came out, over 1,000 seats that were lost? Yeah, almost 700, 700 seats, seats in state legislatures flipped. And yeah, that was in 2010. And so then with that huge gain in seats, the Republican party was able to draw the districts that they thought would be favorable for them. And basically, we saw politicians choosing their voters instead of voters choosing their politicians. Right. So the interesting thing, you mentioned Chris Jankowski. He came into the picture a little bit later after the op-ed was written. Do you know who the original audience for this this article was intended to be? Um, Well, I think writing in the Wall Street Journal, obviously, Karl Rove knew that he would have a wide audience. And I think kind of the wheels were turning in the Republican Party behind the scenes. And this was one of the more outright public mentions of what the plan coming forward was going to be. But until this this man you mentioned, Chris Jankowski, the strategist and consultant took over, there wasn't really a unified person leading this effort. So he really is the person that you can credit with this red map plan and with what we saw happen in 2010. Right. And I wanted to mention one of the more callous pieces of the of the op-ed, which was, you know, they also saw some financial benefits for doing this redistricting. So essentially, he mentioned that the average winner of a competitive house race in 2008 spent $2 million, while a non-competitive seat was defended by far less money. So they were actually saving money at the same time they were kind of taking over these districts. What made the plan so successful is that They used pretty advanced mathematical algorithms and technology to see where that they where they could save money and how that the money they did spend would pay out in seats in Congress. So part of it was kind of the genius, I guess you could call it, behind Chris Jankowski's effort. And another part was just how advanced the technology had become by 2010. Right. Actually, Rachel Maddow, she interviewed Chris Jankowski. She actually referred to him as the genius behind the Red Map Project. From what I've read, Chris Jankowski read this op-ed and then kind of 
inserted himself into the project later, but I'm not sure how true that is. So the group that was behind Redmap was called the Republican State Leadership Commission. And I think that that's now been disbanded. It was disbanded, I think, in 2013, you know, after, you know, they had these great successes. And I don't think that there has been a response from the left, an equivalent leadership commission to kind of retake or redraw the maps. Eric Holder has launched a Democratic version this year. And actually, he's being helped by President Obama in one of uh, the former president's first initiatives after leaving office. So Eric Holder, the former attorney general, is attempting to do something similar on the Democratic side. But for a number of reasons, it's just much harder for Democrats to gerrymander in the same way that Republicans can. So it's kind of unclear what a success for Holder and this uh, commission would look like. Right. So why is it harder for Democrats to do something similar or to at least undo the damage that was done after after 2012? Yeah, well, there's a lot of reasons. One of them is that the damage that occurred in 2012 was so pervasive that it will take kind of a major shift in politics on state and federal level to change it. In winning over state houses in 2012, not only were Republicans able to gerrymander congressional districts so that they could take over uh, the House of Representatives, but they were also able to gerrymander seats on the state level so that it's that much harder for Democrats to win elections to state houses. And it's also, I mean, it's not that Democrats don't engage in gerrymandering as well. If you look at a state like Maryland, they've made attempts to gain a seat or two by packing Republicans into certain districts. But states like Maryland have far fewer people than states that Republicans target with gerrymandering, like Texas and Ohio. And just because of the way that Democrats tend to cluster in urban metropolitan areas and in smaller states, it's really hard for the Democratic Party to do the same thing. So I was listening to the new Democratic strategy and Chuck Schumer addressed a crowd, the new Democratic slogan, a better deal. Right. And, you know, I think it's interesting that, you know, with the success of redistricting for Republicans that, you know, this wasn't mentioned once right, as being a cause for, you know, losing so many seats and losing so many elections. And I don't hear a lot of Democratic leadership mentioning this. Yeah, that's correct. It's not something that the Democratic Party talks about often. Like you said, the Democratic Party unveiled their 2018 campaign slogan in Berryville, Virginia, which is one of the few dozen seats that the party thinks they are able to flip in next year's midterm election. And that message focused almost entirely on uh, economic issues. There were a lot of things that were left out, gerrymandering and voting rights being two of them, but also they hardly touched on social issues or really anything besides how the Democratic Party can win back the working class that they think defected to help elect President Trump. So it's hard to say why the Democratic Party isn't more vocal about the issue of gerrymandering. I think it's something that would not hurt to bring up more often. But I am also not a Democratic strategist, so I don't know kind of the thinking behind getting constituents riled up about the issue. Right. I mean, it it had a huge impact. When you think about the 2008 election and Obama took some, you know, Republican strongholds and, you know, after gerrymandering, these states went red. 
right? I mean, so it's it's obviously had an impact. And you know, changing your marketing strategy isn't going to undo the the damage that redistricting has done. Exactly. In the 2012 election, for example, just like you were saying, Barack Obama won the election. Obviously, he was reelected. Um, and even in states that he won, Republicans were able to win a majority of seats in the House because of the successful gerrymandering that. Republicans had conducted. Okay, so let's talk about Shelby County versus Holder, which is the next big piece of the puzzle. So it was a 2013 Supreme Court case. Can you explain what happened with Shelby County versus Holder? Yeah, so in 2013, in this case, Shelby County versus Holder, the Supreme Court essentially ruled that the Voting Rights Act, which was this landmark piece of legislation passed in the 60s and that was touted as one of the most important civil rights bills of our time, The Supreme Court ruled that the Voting Rights Act had been effective and was no longer needed. In her dissent, which I thought was pretty poignant, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote that getting rid of the Voting Rights Act while it is still working is like saying you don't need an umbrella because you're in the rain and you're not getting wet. So essentially, the Supreme Court gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which was a section that required certain districts around the country, mostly in the South, to pre-clear any of the changes that they wanted to make to their voting laws with the Department of Justice. And these were districts that had histories of racial discrimination and suppressing Black and other minority voters. And up until 2013, all of these districts were required to get permission, essentially, from the Justice Department when they wanted to do something like sign into law a voter ID law. And in 2013, the Supreme Court got rid of that requirement, opening the floodgates for states across the country to pass laws that would restrict voters from casting ballots. Right. So just even hours after this decision came down, several states started to enact laws that were that would have previously been not legal to enact without federal oversight before Shelby County versus Holder. So what were some of the laws that were enacted by some of the states? So North Carolina was a good example. North Carolina is one state that just a few hours after the Supreme Court ruling pushed ahead their restrictive photo ID law. And just to explain for those who aren't familiar, photo ID laws are laws that require all voters to show a form of ID with a photo at the polls in order to cast a ballot. And research shows that these laws are have a tendency to block minority voters, younger voters, students, and elderly voters from the polls, just because those are the people who are more likely not to have something like a driver's license or another form of photo ID. So it just makes it that much harder for people who want to cast a ballot to have to go to the DMV or another state agency in order to get a photo ID in order to vote. So we saw photo ID laws pop up in more than a dozen states after the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. Um, We saw other restrictive laws like laws cutting back on the early voting period in certain states. We saw cuts to same-day registration, which is a policy that allows people to register and cast a ballot on the same day. 
And we saw other simple things like cuts to voting hours on election days and policies that made it more difficult for people to register to vote. You know, the interesting thing about all of these laws that came down, it seems like it's concerted or organized in some way, but it's happening across several different states. Is there a single central organization aside from the Republican Party that's kind of organizing these efforts or are the states just acting on their own? Um, it's mostly the Republican Party and states following the playbook that they see other Republicans across the country uh, playing by. I mean, there's definitely more vocal, outspoken figures within the Republican Party who have for years pushed for laws that restrict voters, claiming that voter fraud is a widespread issue when in reality we know that voter fraud is extremely, extremely rare. So people like Chris Kobach in Kansas, who you may have heard about recently um, for his position co-chairing the White House's voting commission, but he has been very vocal in pushing for restrictive voting laws for years through his position as Kansas's secretary of state. And other states have used the model that he's used in Kansas. He does this thing called cross-check where he will go through his voter rolls and look for what he says are non-citizens casting ballots in elections in Kansas, and he'll purge people off of the rolls. And it's studies have shown that a lot of eligible voters get caught up in those purges and get removed from the rolls. So not only is that a problem in Kansas, but other states have followed and have used similar cross-check systems. So we can go back to Chris Kobach a bit later, but I wanted to go back to Shelby County versus Holder because you wrote a piece shortly after that called Selma's Missing Epilogue. And the thing is, around the time that, you know, voting rights were being rolled back after Shelby County versus Holder, the movie Selma came out. It was, you know, widely celebrated, you know, it won Academy Awards. And I think that the mood of the country was we were all patting ourselves on the back. And it was kind of similar to the mood after the 2008 election when Obama was elected president. You know, we were patting ourselves on the back and we were kind of in the celebratory mood. You know, Republicans were kind of quietly dismantling voting rights. So what did you mean in that piece, Selma's Missing Epilogue? Yeah, well, if you remember, the movie Selma came out a few years after the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in Shelby County v. Holder. Um, I think it came out around Christmas time in 2015, or Christmas time in 2014, I'm sorry. And yeah, like you said, we all went out to the movie theaters and saw this amazing depiction of the march in Selma and the passage of the Voting Rights Act and all of the heroic efforts that went into that. And all of that was very true. But what struck me the most as a political reporter covering voting rights sitting there in the theater is that how much of that we've seen become undone in the last few years and how how sad it was that we had these civil rights heroes fight for such an important piece of legislation just to have Republicans in the last few years unravel it. So I wrote about that, always to be the downer, um, but I wrote about how the Supreme Court did get the Voting Rights Act and how the unwritten epilogue to this movie is that dozens of states have moved to block the very voters that these civil rights icons fought on behalf of, block them from the polls. And the efforts being used today aren't as overt as poll taxes or literacy tests or the other things we saw during the Jim Crow era, but they are just as dangerous.
Next, I talk with Kat Kelvin, the founder of the organization Spread the Vote. It's an organization that helps citizens get their IDs, and it's a really important job because not only are there millions of Americans without the proper ID to vote, but it makes so many aspects of their lives nearly impossible, like driving or getting a job or a place to live. Kat Calvin explains their process, and she also talks about the challenges that people face when trying to just simply get their IDs. You know, we pair a volunteer or two with a voter and they go through them with them through the whole process. So they get to know this one person and they're not being passed off to a lot of different volunteers. It's their one person. And then that person takes them to Vital Records or the Social Security Administration or the DMV or whatever and walks them through the whole process, which is so important because people get treated horribly, you know, and, and for the people we're working with who are, you know, often homeless, often ex-felons, I'm often have, you know, had maybe a drug or alcohol problem, are disabled in many different types of ways. You know, right. Are people who are young and of color, are people who are used to anyone who represents, you know, the man or the system treating them like they're less than human. The idea of walking into one of these offices is terrifying. You know, yeah. um, and we always like, we will be with you through this whole thing because I know how that feels. And I don't ever want anyone to feel like we're sending them into the gauntlet alone or that we're sending them to be abused alone. And I also don't ever want anyone walking in and to have to experience that because someone thinks that they have permission to treat them that way. Um, because it is, it's, it's people are you get treated a certain way for long enough and you start to expect it, A, and you start to believe it. Um, and, yeah. and then when you don't have, you know, this little tiny square inch of paper that you need to prove you're a legal human who's allowed to exist, your life is a lot harder than people understand. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the thing. So I was reading through some of the stories on your site. And I think, you know, you, you have people who, for some reason, have never had a birth certificate. Mm -hmm. Right. Or, you know, people who are not able bodied or, you know, they're one man. I think Marvin was in a wheelchair. Yeah. And but you said, that, like you said earlier, there are 21 million people who don't have ID and these are eligible voters. Right. Yeah, There's actually a lot more. But when you're just looking at eligible voters, 21 million, it's about 11 percent of the country. That's insane. And so how <laughs> you have a big job ahead of you. How how do you tackle each of these cases, you know, one by one? I mean, how? How do you do this? Uh, well, I wake up every morning and I say, all right, 21 million, but we're <laughs> going to do it one at a time. Um, and so what we have done, you know, when we first started, we, I, I after the election, it's been pretty obvious to me that voter ID laws had had a massive impact, not just on the national election, I'm, but on local elections. And, and, you know, that's one thing we focus on really heavily is down battle, battle ballot elections that have very small margins of victories. And that also directly impact the lives of the people we're working with, right? Like city council, the sheriff, the mayor, the board of supervisors, those are the people who really run your life. Um, you know, like we work with a, yes, a shelter Jesus. in Virginia where um, the city council had just decided, you know, a little bit before we started working with them to make it a year-round shelter instead of just an emergency shelter. Like that 
directly and incredibly impacts the people we're working with. And city council elections, nobody votes for those, right? They have very low margins of victory. Right. And so it was really obvious that when you're preventing these people from voting, these you know specific demographics, which whose rights are always being suppressed in a million different ways, people of color, people who are low income, elderly who are low income, young people, especially college age young people who are either not in college or in states where you can't vote with your student ID, even students who are in college, you know, people who are homeless, who are, are disabled in some way, etc. And so, you know, we spent a long time talking to a lot of experts around the country who are very, very generous with their time and say, hey, I want, you know, I want to solve this problem. I want to figure out how. And I like started with one idea and everyone was like, that's ridiculous. It's never going to work. Here are the 52 reasons why. And I'd be like, all right. And I do some more research, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, and then keep going. And then they'd be like, yeah, you're getting warmer. And then one day I like had an idea and they're like, oh, actually, no one's done that. That's a great idea. And so I was like, good, I'm going with that. And then we pivoted 52 more times once we got on the ground until we found what worked. And what we realized are a couple of things. A, <laughs> 21 million people is a lot. Um, yes. <laughs> and 20 states that have that are like photo ID states is a lot. And it's really hard to get an ID. You know, it takes us on average three to four weeks. Sometimes we get lucky and it's less than that. Oftentimes it's a lot more than that. It costs us an average of $40, but again, sometimes much less often much more. And it's a very personal process, right? Like you're a asking someone to admit that they don't have a thing that they know they need to have. Um, and then you need all their personal information. Where were you born? Who are your parents? What's your social security number? <laughs> you know, tell me your whole life story. And it's a very personal thing that takes a very long time to do. And so we realized this has to be neighbors helping neighbors for a variety of reasons. And so we build local community chapters where people are helping people in their communities. And we, we partner, we have this great partnership with Indivisible, which is amazing Oregon. And I love them. And we work with a lot of Indivisible chapters. We work with some, you know, like Women's March Huddles and Together We Will groups are just people who have come together in the community and say, we want to help, you know, people in our community, A, just be able to live better lives and thus, you know, improve our community along with us, but also because they're going to make an impact at the polls. And then we train them on everything that they need to know and how to get IDs. And we have this whole instructional library and we do trainings and have, you know, webinar series, et cetera, have a legal team and everything to help with advice. We cover all the fees. Um, which can be expensive or every you know. once in a while we get lucky and we're like, yes, 20 bucks. Nice. <laughs> and then we partner with local service organizations. So homeless shelters, free clinics, legal clinics, churches, food banks, the types of places where if you don't have an ID, you're, it's very likely that you're going to encounter one of the, or more of these types of services. And then once we connect with a voter who needs an ID, they get assigned to two volunteers who help them do the whole process. And then we're building out these chapters throughout each state and then building state to state as our you know fundraising and budget allows. So we're in Georgia, Virginia, Tennessee. I'm actually speaking to you from Florida right now. We, <laughs> I'm setting up our operations here. And then next month, I'll be heading to Texas and launching us there. Yeah. And the goal is to have chapters in every community and every state where people are working with people in their own communities to help them change their lives, change their communities, and change the ballots. Now with those who have said that we would get here only over their dead bodies. Well, that's it. No, no. Yeah. All the world today knows that we are here and we are standing before of power in the state of Alabama saying we ain't gonna let nobody turn us around. <laughs>
That was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his famous address during a march in Montgomery, Alabama. And Alabama, of course, has been the center of the fight for voting rights. And Selma was the scene of the most memorable and most violent struggle for voting rights in this country. Here's Professor Carol Anderson again, talking about what took place on a fateful Sunday in 1965 and what role this event had in creating the Voting Rights Act. And when you think about it, the the Voting Rights Act itself emerged out of decades of violence, but particularly that violent scene first on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where nonviolent protesters led by Hosea Williams and John Lewis are crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge as part of a symbolic carrying of Jimmy Lee Jackson's casket because he was gunned down by Alabama cops for defending his mother against a beating during a voting rights protest. And so they're symbolically carrying his casket from Selma to Montgomery to basically put it on the doorstep of Governor George Wallace. As they crossed the bridge, they didn't even get too far across the bridge. Alabama State Patrol, as well as Sheriff Jim Clark and his deputies, then basically bum rushed the nonviolent protesters tear gas going off. They're being whipped with whips wrapped in barbed wire, being trampled by horses. That scene played out on, on, you know, the the television cameras are there. ABC, that evening, ABC cut into its movie of the week, Judgment at Nuremberg, to show, wow, yes, to show the footage from Bloody Sunday, that, that, that hell that happened on Edmund Pettus Bridge. Then you have a wave of, of allies coming into Selma to do the next march. Um, it is held up by a federal court order. In that moment where it's held up, some white Alabamians were so mad that there were actually not just black folk there, but white folk there who actually believed that black people had the right to vote. And so they went after a group of ministers and started beating them. And one of them was Reverend James Reeb. So imagine the the hatred you have to have to beat an unarmed minister to death, to crack his skull wide open. It was that moment where Lyndon Johnson just said, OK, he doggone enough already. It is clear we don't have the protections that we need. We have tried and tried and tried over and over. And that precious right to vote is not protected. We're getting ready to put some federal protection behind the right to vote. And that's what the Voting Rights Act did. Thank you for listening. And please remember to vote this year on Tuesday, November 6th. Take your family and your friends to vote, then volunteer in a campaign or with an organization to help others vote. This year's midterms is probably one of the most important votes of our lifetimes. I'll have suggestions in the show notes of ways to volunteer. And until next time, keep up the good fight. <laughs>